Our text for the day, Ezekiel 26. In Ezekiel chapter 26, we begin the first of four oracles or prophecies that Ezekiel gives concerning a city called Tyre or Tyrus, either one, Tyrus or Tyre, same place. Uh, Depends on who's writing it and what time period and all that. But the, the city of Tyre is one that you should know about a little bit before we read this. Um, it's a forgotten city largely. Today it's just a small village, um, really, really nothing to really look at or think about. But there was a day where Tyre was the city. Um, in some ways, you know, like if you think of what are the great cities of the world today, you might say New York City, you might say Paris or London, you know, like there's some big cities that are known in the world. Well, back in the ancient days, <clears throat> during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, Tyre was sort of the New York City. It was a hub of commerce and money, wealth, fancy homes, and it was right there on the Mediterranean Sea, north of Israel. And this little city became a giant city. It was very populated and um, very wealthy, and the Phoenicians were the ones who made the city great. They were known for their shipping, and, um, and as the centuries went by, their shipping became more and more Uh, efficient, they had ships that could take goods much further distances, and they started to rake in the bucks. Uh, And they would service the whole Mediterranean area uh, with uh, goods and services from all over the Middle East. And so it was really a giant city. It'd be like if, if you could almost fast forward a thousand years from now, and let's say New York City was just uh, like Dundee. And you say, man, what's the deal with this? Why, why is anybody talking about this? It's just, you know, like if New York City was leveled, destroyed, and it became nothing, and then a thousand years, people had never even heard of it. They're like, what, New York? It was, a, it was a big city? And you'd be like, yeah, it was like one of the biggest cities in the world. It was a really famous, that's kind of what we're doing here. Tyrus was huge, and it was important. And now, you and I don't know much about it because it is thousands and thousands of years ago. It's, it's really nothing today. And that plays into the curse that God is gonna place upon Tyre. And what I want you to do is, I want you to notice as we read this chapter, take careful thought as we read it and observe how they were gonna be destroyed. Like what are the conditions and what are the descriptions that the Lord says, here's how you're going down? Because this is a prophecy. And we're gonna explore how true this prophecy really was. So let's read Ezekiel 26, talking about the destruction of, the, the judgment of Tyre. It says in chapter 26, verse one, and it came to pass in the 11th year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, because that Tyrus or Tyre hath said against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken. That was the gates of the people. She has turned unto me, I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee as the sea causes his waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations." 
and her daughters which are in the field, they shall be slain by the sword, and they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadrezzar, uh, the Chaldean way of saying Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the king of kings from the north, with horses and with chariots, with horsemen and companies and much people. He shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field and shall make a fort against thee and cast a mount against thee and lift up the buckler against thee. And he shall set engines of war against thy walls. And with his axes, he shall break down thy towers. By reason of the abundance of his horses, their dust shall cover thee. Thy walls shall shake at the noise of the horsemen and the wheels of the chariots. When he shall enter into thy gates as men enter into the city wherein is made a breach. With the hoofs of his horses shall he tread down all thy streets. He shall slay thy people by the sword and thy strong garrison shall go down to the ground. And they shall make a spoil of thy riches, make a prey of thy merchandise. And they shall break down thy walls and destroy thy pleasant houses and they shall lay thy stones in thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. And I will cause the noise of thy songs to cease and the sound of thy harps shall be no more heard. And I will make thee like the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt build no more for I, the Lord, have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to Tyrus, shall not the isles shake at the sound of, the, of thy fall? when the wounded cry, when the, the, the slaughter is made in the midst of thee. Then all the princes of the sea shall come down from their thrones and lay away their robes and put off their broidered garments and they shall clothe themselves with trembling. They shall sit upon the ground and shall tremble at every moment and be astonished at thee. And they shall take up a lamentation for thee and say to thee, how art thou destroyed that was inhabited of seafaring men? The renowned city, which was strong in the sea, she and her, her inhabitants, which caused their terror to be on all that haunt it. Now shall the isles tremble in the day of thy fall. Yea, the isles that are in the sea shall be troubled at thy departure. For thus saith the Lord God, when I shall make thee a desolate city, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I shall bring up the deep upon thee and great waters shall cover thee, when I shall bring thee down with them that descend into the pit, with the people of the old time and shall set thee in the low parts of the earth in the places desolate of old with them that go down to the pit that thou be not inhabited and I shall set glory in the land of the living and I will make thee a terror and thou shalt be no more though thou be sought for yet thou shalt never be found again saith the Lord God. Heavy scripture, you're like, wow, thanks Brett, brought a nice doom and gloom scripture for us today here. Well, we're going through the Bible and this is where we're at, but it is a sad story of a destruction of a glorious city. It was glorious. And it says here, people would try to rebuild and seek the glory, the greatness of its once, of its once goodness and greatness. They'd seek after that. But the last verse says, you'll never find it again. It won't ever be the great city that it once was. And, and, and so you say, okay, wow, this is a, a brutal uh, story of the destruction of Tyre. Now some of you are like, Brett, what, is this, what does this have to do with anything? If you've been traveling with us in Ezekiel, you've been seeing how it's been curses against Judea and Jerusalem. And God's saying, because of your rebellion, I'm gonna crush you. D disciplined, correct. 
And you say, well, now why are we talking about Tyre? It's not even in Israel, it's a whole other place north of Israel and, and today, Lebanon. What's the deal? But it's almost like this. Do you remember when your parents, when your mom was getting, you know, disciplining you? Now, Brett, you need to do, but your sister was chuckling the fact that you were getting in trouble. And so the mom turns her gaze and says, you're in trouble and you're next. And then back to the one that was in trouble. That's what God does here. God's saying, Jerusalem, Judah, you're in trouble. And Tyre's over there going, ha ha ha, this is awesome. And the Lord says, you're next. You're going down too. And three chapters, these three chapters give us four oracles. The first oracle is chapter 26, we just read, the destruction of Tyre. The second oracle is this funeral dirge uh, about the, the destruction of Tyre. And then in chapters uh, 28, uh, we have the, um, the two last dirge, uh, you know, uh, oracles that speak of the destruction of the king of Tyre and the ruler of Tyre. Um, so the Lord, he spends three chapters talking about the city being destroyed. Now, the, the, the thing about this that's interesting is this once again, to me, is a story, but it also reminds us that God knows the way things are gonna work out. The scriptures declare that God knows the beginning from the end. He knows how things are gonna turn out. And, and we call it Bible prophecy. The Bible tells us, here's what's gonna happen. This is one of those amazing prophecies that I, I marvel at. There's hundreds of these prophecies, by the way, that, and, and you know some of them. I mean, some of the most amazing prophecies, if you ask me, are the ones about Jesus, his first coming. Uh, the city that he'd be born in, Bethlehem, was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. The fact that he would be, uh, you know, um, crucified was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. The, you know, the fact that he'd go from there and become a Nazarene and be in Egypt and all this stuff, like all those things, 300 specific prophecies about Jesus came to pass 100%. So the Bible's amazing when it comes to prophecy. And, and what that does is it reminds me of the miraculous nature of the book that we read, the book that we study. Chapter 26 of Ezekiel reminds me that there's no other book even close to the Bible. It was Sir Isaac Newton who was voted, by the way, top scientist in the world's history. Isaac Newton said, there are more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than any profane history. In other words, no one even comes close, any work of literature or any of that stuff, nobody's even close. And the Bible stands the test of time as being the true word of God. Um, I believe the Bible is inspired by God. Every word is inspired by God. I believe that it's inspired and it's in, in, inerrant, which is a way of saying without errors, without contradiction. And some of you might be saying, Brett, I don't know about that. It's because some of you listen to your University of Oregon college professors with their cardigan sweaters and their puffing pipes uh, pontificating in their great wisdom. Um, can I just remind you, those of you young people that went to University of Oregon or all these colleges and universities where these so-called professors, like the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Can I just remind you, the same people, I remember when I went to Southern Oregon University, one of my profs started, this is back in the 80s. One of my profs said, started the class out, I'm a communist Marxist. And I'm like, great, you're my computer programming professor. I, like, I don't, who cares that you're a weirdo? Um, uh, I mean, as an eight-year-old kid, I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, I knew that wasn't good, <laughs> communist Marxist. He spent the whole class, by the way, talking about how we need to start legalizing drugs 
All drugs need to be legalized in the state of Oregon. At that time, I thought that's never gonna happen. <laughs> Turns out he was kind of a prophet in his own uh, right. This professor. But I, I need to remind you, can I give you pause about those professors in your you know, universities? Because they're the same people that, are, that have been saying for years, and uh, the, the same worldview, defund the police. We don't know if there's really boy or girl. There's actually you know, hundreds of genders now. Um, like some real obvious, like there's some real gaps in some intelligence in some of these people that you've been listening to. You parents, you paid 50 grand a year for your kid to be indoctrinated by these guys. Um, and, and one of the things they love to do is bash the Bible. So some of you that went to college and universities, you've been taught to question and say, well, the Bible's full of errors. And I'm here to tell you, uh, don't listen to this. It's ridiculous. I wanna give you a few reasons why I believe the Bible is, in fact, the word of God. The first one you can jot down, by the way, is its own testimony, that it is the inspired word of God. This book says of itself, no other book that I know of really claims to have God-breathed word without error and without mistake. The Bible claims that. It says that, by the way, if you're jotting down your notes, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, literally uh, translated fully matured is there, uh, the word perfect, fully matured, thoroughly furnished, means equipped to do good, all, you know, good works, unto all good works. What is the Bible good for? It equips you to do good things. What is the Bible good for? It's profitable for doctrine, which is teaching and instruction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And when it says all scripture, that means every word, every verse, all scripture is given by inspiration. That word inspiration could be translated God breathed. Your cardigan wearing pipe puffing professor said, oh, it's just the work of men. People wrote the Bible and they stuck it up all together in a big bunch of books and made the Bible, but it's just men's writing. That's what they say, it's just the word of men. That's one of their big arguments. Well, the Bible says no. Well, Brad, I'm, I happen to know Moses wrote the Pentateuch and I happen to know that Ezekiel penned, you know, the book of Ezekiel. Well, it's true, they, they were the ones who put the ink to the paper or the stylus to the stone or whatever they used, but they, 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 they penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the God breathed through um, the Spirit to that person and he wrote down what God put on their heart. Well, Brett, that's not proof that the Bible is inspired and inerrant. No, but I'm just starting the discussion out. One of the reasons I believe this is because you have to kind of say, is the Bible true or false on this one verse? that all scripture is God-breathed. That's either true or false. I happen to believe it's true. Well, you're like, good for you. Well, I'll tell you, there's some huge evidence that should make you sit up and take notice because this book is different than any other book you'll ever read. Uh, let me give you a couple of other reasons. So number one, the Bible, you know, it's, it's, um, it's in its own testimony says it's the word of God. But number two on our consideration of the Bible, it's internal harmony. Perfect, inerrant. Shouldn't the Bible be full of contradictions? I mean, that's what your college professor will say. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. It, it technically should be, and I'll tell you why. Because the Bible was written, 66 different books, written by 40 different authors. And man, the authors of the Bible couldn't be more diverse. You know, you have the herdsmen like Amos. You've got kings, you know, like David and Solomon. 
You got government officials like Matthew, the tax collector, and scholars like Paul, and generals like Joshua, and doctors like Luke, fishermen <laughs> like Peter. Um, it's funny, I, you know, all the scholars and all the kings and stuff, but there's just like, you tell you what, <laughs> I'm a fisherman, and I like his books a lot. Peter was awesome. Prisoners, convicts wrote the Bible. You'd think with 66 different books and 40 different authors that you might have some contradictions and some things that don't fit together, things that are you know, contradictory to science or, or uh, things that you know, are, we know to be fact now. You'd think you'd find all kinds of stuff like that, but there's nothing. 40 different authors, and then add to that 1,500 years. The Bible was written over a 1,500 year period. I always like to use this example. Let's just say we're gonna make up a religion. I want you to make up a religion. So I choose three of you and I spread you out in the building. I give you whatever room. You say you have 30 minutes to write a, a sort of a manifesto of your new religion. And then we come together after 30 minutes and we look at your papers. And what are the odds of those manifestos all sort of matching and fitting together perfectly? And listen, that's just three people over a 30 minute period of time writing three little paragraphs. Try writing 66 books with 40 different authors over a 1500 year period. And by the way, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, the Bible was written in those various original languages on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And, and for the Bible to be congruent and to fit together as it so perfectly does, is that really a coincidence? Or is that a godowence? I think God did this. This is why the Bible's God breathed. And because of that, there, amazingly, it's zero contradictions. Now, if you've heard you know, the Discover Channel and the History Channel and your college professors and all the pipe puffers, listen. They say the Bible's full of contradictions. I remember in my little school where I went, Southern Oregon University, which is like a little min miniature berserkly. Um, um, I mean, Berkeley. Uh, it really was. Uh, Southern Oregon is like a miniature Berkeley. Um, but I had several times over the years where those professors said, the Bible's full of contradiction. And, and I always, it always made me laugh because, I mean, I could come up with better arguments against the Bible if, if you really wanted me to. But some of these professors, all they have is a bunch of 18-year-old kids uh, coming into their class. They've been teaching the class for 40 years. And they still have ridiculous arguments. I couldn't believe it when one guy took the bait and said, yeah, the Bible's full of contradiction. He said, Look, just consider Jonah and the whale. He went off on that one. I was like, yes, Jonah and the whale. I love it when people say this because they believe it contradicts science. And you know, that a man cannot be swallowed by a whale. And he made his argument and then I raised my hand. I said, now, now that's, I give you that man. You know, maybe biologically a whale can't swallow a man. But see, you know, you're failing to see something. And I explained, you know, the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. The Bible says it was a big fish, not a whale. So you're wrong just in your premise. Oh, so you believe that a big fish swallowed a man? Well, you know, if you believe Genesis 1-1, I would explain that in the beginning, God created the heavens. And I know you don't believe that, but I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. If God said, let there be light, and the sun ends up in the cosmos, if he can do that, I believe God could create a rainbow trout the size of this building. <laughs> it's not a stretch, man. If he can create the sun, he can create a trout in the ocean that's seafaring and saltworthy. And not only that, he could have left a scuba tank and a, a, a regulator there for Jonah. 
Like it's not hard to imagine God doing whatever he wants if he can create the sun. So see, you're, you're saying the Bible's full of errors and all this, but you're saying it's a whale. It's not a whale, it's just a big fish. And, um, but you know what's funny? Did you guys see the news this week? The guy that got swallowed by the whale? <laughs> big news this week. This guy's like famous. He's all over the news this week. And it was a crazy story. The guy, he's a diver and he dives for lobster. He's a professional diver. He's done it for 40 years, lobster diving. And he was down doing his lobster thing and all of a sudden he's in total darkness and he feels like his legs were broken. What happened? A whale snuck up on him and just went, hmm. <laughs> and he, was, he said, you know, like you can hear the interviews. It's amazing. He said it felt like I was in there for hours, but he was probably in there for about 30 seconds. He still had his, you know, regulators in. So he, he was breathing and he was thinking this, he, first he thought it was a giant shark, but then he didn't see any sharp teeth. So he's like, oh no. I've been swallowed by a whale. And he remembers thinking about his family and how he's about to die. That's what he thought. I'm about to be swallowed by this whale. So he's in the mouth of this whale, pitch black, you know, just trying to figure out what to do. And then all of a sudden the whale kind of breaches up into the uh, open water. It doesn't go in the air, but just opens his mouth and spits him out. <laughs> now all the fishermen guys in the boat, they saw this whale breach. They're like, oh, look at the whale. And then they see the whale spit their buddy out. <laughs> like he's like, he's like out there. And they, they quickly get over and scoop him up and, and take him to the hospital and everything. But now he's all over the news saying, yeah, man, I was, I was swallowed by a whale. Um, I love that because it just kind of makes everybody look really stupid. <laughs> Except for the Bible, of course. Amen. But, but um, you know, the thing is, if God wanted to make a big fish and swallow Jonah and put a pocket of air in there where he could survive for three days, I don't have a problem with that because I believe God can do whatever he wants. But these apparent contradictions, you know, they're all uh, easily explained. I, I shouldn't say all, there's some hard things, I'll admit, but uh, all have an explanation. That's why the Bible continues to roll along unscathed, even though cardigan wearing, pipe puffing professors come and go over the centuries, it just continues to stand. Why? Because the Bible is true and the Bible is in fact God breathed. On this category of the Bible, it's, it's um, internal harmony you know, it's perfect, inerrant word of God. On that subject, how do we know that this Bible is reliable? A lot of people ask that question, Brett. How do we know the Bible we have today is like the Bible of the original text, like when Paul wrote it or when Isaiah wrote it? Because that's what your college professors will try to undermine. They'll say its reliability is very, very bad. And, and this is a lie. This is an outright lie when they say that the text that we have is unreliable. Um, how do we know the Bible is reliable? Well, as it turns out, um, there is a way that scholars look at ancient texts and what have you. Um, you know, uh, there's scholars that, that study ancient history will tell you that in order to test the validity of any work of ancient liter literary work, um, you have to consider how many manuscripts uh, exist. Um, and the reason that's important is we don't really have the original text of anything. I remember one of my final exam questions in a writing class I had in college, the question was this stupid false dilemma. The question was this, asking 18 year old students, why do Bible scholars and theologians wince when the words, what's in the original text are uttered? That was the question. You're supposed to write you know, an essay on why do Bibles, first of all, I know a lot of Bible scholars and theologians, none of them are wincing. <gasps> Nobody's doing that. That's just a made up thing. First of all, we don't wince. And then second of all, there's an easy answer. That, 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 did you know that all the great literary works of ancient times, we don't have the original text of any of it. Consider Plato. 
Plato? I played with Plato in kindergarten. No, Plato, uh, the, the philosopher. Um, interesting, with Plato, uh, in college we had to read his work, The uh, Republic. If you had to read that, it's not armchair reading, uh, but he wrote it. Um, and nobody in any scholastic world would say that the works of Plato are in question of the authenticity or the reliability that we have what he actually wrote. Nobody questions that. They, they, they say it's uh, airtight and what have you. But his work, uh, Plato's work, actually as it turns out, he's got seven manuscripts. That is before there was the Gutenberg press and, and copy machines, um, the, the scribes would make copies of books. Did you know before the Gutenberg Press, there were only 30,000 books in all of Europe? Like books, bound, you know, books, 30,000, because they had to be kind of handwritten, so it wasn't like something you had laying around everywhere. So there were seven manuscripts that had been copied from Plato's original work. Seven's pretty good, but that's, that's nothing. What about Aristotle? If you've ever read any of the works of Aristotle, we have 49 of his manuscripts uh, handwritten that you can compare and see how close to the original it would have been. Um, did anybody here have to read Homer's Iliad? Anybody? Yeah, some of you guys had to read that. Um, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I wasn't a big Homer fan, but, um, but Homer, his work, Iliad, 643 manuscript coffee, copies of his work. So that's really impressive. So nobody questions the validity of Plato or Aristotle or Homer's Iliad because, because of the manuscript evidence of what it, and you can, the more the manuscript evidence, the more you can compare. Um, see, um, the thing is, the New Testament alone, just the New Testament of our Bible. Did you know that there's actually a few manuscripts of that? 24,000 written manuscripts from all the centuries of the New Testament. Um, by the way, not only is it manuscripts, but check out this. You have 5,300 manuscripts that were written in the original Greek language, but because of the Roman Empire um, and what have you, even in the first century, they started to uh, you know, transcribe the original New Testament into Latin. And there's over 10,000 Latin uh, manuscripts of the entire New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. 10,000 of the Latin, and the entire New, New Testament, we actually have 9,300 portions, uh, snippets of New Testament manuscripts. So um, compared to Plato, Homer, Aristotle, the Bible, man, those other guys, child's play. The Bible is more referenced, more manuscript out through languages and uh, centuries, a <coughs> hundred times over. Um, than any other literary work. In fact, if there's a guy named Dr. Bruce Metzger, who's a Greek New Testament scholar who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary, um, is considered the top you know, uh, ancient Greek manuscript uh, authority in the world. Um, he said that when you have a large number of manuscripts from different geographical areas and different languages, you can cross-check them to determine what the original documents really were like. And he says, when you compare a manuscript um, that was copied like in 300 AD with one that was copied in 900 AD, you can determine um, if they're the same documents by a simple examination of the wording and the, and the definitions. John Wenham, another Greek New Testament scholar, author of the highly regarded book, The Elements of the Greek New Testament, says when you compare a great diversity of copies of the New Testament manuscripts, you'll find them all to be relatively homogeneous. They appear to be almost the same. 
And this is why Metzger believes the resulting text that we have today is 99.5% accurate to the originals. And he also notes that the 0.5% that's in question does not affect one single doctrine of the Bible. This is interesting. Like these are scholars who aren't necessarily Christians going praise the Lord. These are guys saying the New Testament's about as reliable as it gets. Now there is a Christian who said this, Dr. Norman Geisler said, this in fact, the New Testament documents have more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, and more abundantly supported manuscripts than the best 10 pieces of classical literature combined. And that's the truth. Why do these cardigan wearing pipe puffing professors say all this stuff about the Bible? The Bible's full of contradictions and stuff like that. Why do they say that? Somebody said it, I don't know who said it, but they nailed it when they said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. And that's what's happening. These same professors that were convincing you that the Bible's full of errors are the same professors today who are saying defund the police who are saying you can't tell a girl from a boy and, and girls should uh, have men competing in their track events and uh, you know, all the crazy stuff that we're hearing today. Same people, same groups that are with the same agenda, undermine the Bible and uh, teach a bunch of nonsense. That's their MO. So um, we've got number one, the Bible you know, speaks of itself as the inspired word of God. It's internal harmony, number two. But thirdly, it's provability archeologically. If the Bible wasn't true, you'd think something ancient that was said in the Bible would prove to be just wrong archeologically. Now, be careful on this one, because those that have tried to make the case the Bible's in error archeologically, eventually they're proven to be nincompoops. They totally don't know what they're talking about. Um, there's some that have happened in many of our lifetimes that are actually kind of fun. Did you know that one of the number one arguments scholars so-called were making that Jesus really didn't exist? It was a made up invention, the historical Jesus and all this stuff. Did you know that before 1961, one of the top arguments that the whole narrative of the Jesus story was wrong, one of the top arguments that you know, Harvard and Princeton and all these universities were using was that there was no such individual in history called Pontius Pilate. That was a made up character by a bunch of you know, Bible authors that were trying to make a story and make a religion. That was the narrative. There was no Pontius Pilate. And we have that in, uh, and uh, they always use this phrase, we know that there was no Pontius Pilate. And when you hear that phrase, well, we know, just, just add in your mind, nothing. We know nothing. <laughs> when we go to Israel, I take you to Caesarea, which is this beautiful coastal place where one of the most amazing archeological ruins of ancient Caesarea, it's an incredible place. But in 1961, they were digging archeologically in Caesarea. It's an amazing dig, honestly. I've been there nine times to this Caesarea dig. Um, or 10 times, I think, yeah, 10 times. And you know what's great? They found this stone. Uh, and I always bring our group as we walk by, you know, a lot of people just walk by this stone and say, yeah, whatever. But this stone, well, this is a replica of the stone that's, uh, that's sitting there. Uh, and Micah and I, we, we got to take this picture here of this stone that's there in Caesarea. But Micah and I wanted to see the real thing, so we went to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And we took a photo of the real thing. Here's the real stone. And it says on there, translation, to the divine Augustus, um, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. They found this first century stone that told us that Pontius Pilate was the prefect of, of Judea 
just like the Bible said, and it shut the mouths of the cardigan-wearing, pipe-puffing guys. They couldn't use their dumb argument that Pontius Pilate didn't exist anymore. You know, after that, they had another one that they started to attack. Caiaphas, the high priest was never the high priest of Jerusalem. Caiaphas was never, he's a made-up character. After they lost this battle, they went to Caiaphas. It was in 1990 they were digging in Jerusalem and they found what they believed to be Caiaphas's house, but they definitely found Caiaphas's uh, sarcophagus and tomb. This is one of those boxes where they gather the bones of a person and put it in this bone box. That's what that is, it's not a coffin. But it, it was marked and it was labeled by ancient writings, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, taking out the, the legs of the argument that the Bible's full of errors and there was no such archeological place. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Here's a guy who wasn't even a Christian. Um, uh, he was a, a Jewish archeological expert. He was a rabbi, uh, but he was also kind of an academic, uh, but not a Christian, Dr. Nelson Gluick. And he said, you know, quite a few years ago, as, as he was digging in some of these ancient Holy Land places, he said, it may be stated categorically that no archeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible and by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. In other words, if you use the Bible as your reference and then start digging where the Bible tells you to dig, you're gonna find exactly what the Bible says. That's what he's saying. Like when they said for years, there's no such thing as the plains of Dura near Babylon where uh, Nebuchadnezzar set up his statue to be worshiped. Never happened. They said that for years. And then there were some guys digging in, in the, near Babylon and they not only found a place where the writing of the plains of Dura was found, but they may have found the very platform where Nebuchadnezzar put the statue. That's what Nelson Gluick was arguing you know, a generation ago. Go back a couple generations, there was a guy, Julius Wellhausen. He was a pipe puffing, cardigan wearing guy. He said, we cannot take the Bible as being the totally inerrant word of God. Genesis 14 states that four Mesopotamian kings came down to do battle against three, uh, pardon me, five kings near the Dead Sea. And we know, there's that phrase, we know, nothing. Uh, we know that there were no kings around the Dead Sea. That was his argument, That's, that was what he made uh, for his point. Later, after, right after he died, this guy, uh, Julius Wellhausen, later they were digging in Egypt of all places and they found an ancient library. And in that ancient library of Egyptian writings and what have you, it described in perfect detail a battle of four Mesopotamian kings that went up against five Dead Sea kings. It's that story, you know, from Genesis 14 where Abraham was going to rescue Lot who had been taken by one of these groups. And, and it's, a, it's a Bible story. Most people just blow over it, but it was a point of real contention right up until they found the library, the ancient library telling about that, that same battle, confirming the Bible to be right. And Julius Wellhausen goes down in history as another guy that didn't know what he was talking about. I hope you're careful if you're one saying, I'm gonna to listen to these pipe puffing guys because they seem so intelligent. They, they're being proven wrong over and over and over again. So it's a um, provability archeologically. Um, number four on our list of things that I'm giving you this morning is the Bible, it's amazing durability. 
you know, standing the test of time. Uh, you know, the, the Bible itself, uh, no other book has been the target of destruction uh, as, as much as the Bible has, but it continues to be the bestseller. New York Times used to put the Bible as the bestseller every, every single time, because it is, but they got sick of doing that, so they took it off, because uh, they're like, yeah, the Bible is the bestseller. But forget that now, we're gonna just talk about the bestsellers otherwise. But the Bible continues to be the bestseller in the world. Um, and, it's, and it's amazing how it stands the test of time. Um, let me give you another one, are you ready? Number five on our list of why the Bible's reliable, it's fulfilled prophecy. It's fulfilled prophecy. Now we're getting close to the reason why we're reading Ezekiel 26 and why I'm talking about this. Like, yeah, when are we gonna get back to the tire? I'm already tired. <laughs> well, the Bible's fulfilled prophecy is one of the major things that you and I can look at to say, this book is like no other. Oh, that's wrong, Brett. George Orwell's 1984 was a book of prophecy. Not really. Uh, he, he did do amazing. And he, he gets the award as, uh, as, as a dude who wrote about the future. He, he nailed it. We even have a term, Orwellian. Boy, that's Orwellian. You know, big brother and, and the government watching you and all that stuff. Like, that's all very Orwellian. So he did do a good job. The people that have studied this, he was 35% accurate, which is impressive or Nostradamus or whatever, you can kind of look at certain people who are sort of uh, future tellers or whatever, but compared to the Bible, child's play, man. The Bible is huge. More than half of the prophecies in the Bibles have perfectly been fulfilled. The rest are prophecies concerning the end of the world and the last days. And we're seeing some of those things start to unfold right in front of us. Um, on you know, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, we're watching some of those end times prophecies come to life right now. Um, so what I wanna do is, is point you to Ezekiel 26 and say this is one of those fulfilled prophecies that is amazing. It's incredible that Ezekiel wrote down in such detail what would happen to Tyre because it came to pass in, in a radical way. Let's look at some of the features again um, uh, about this. First question we gotta ask, ask about this destruction of Tyre is why did the Lord judge Tyre to begin with? The answer is found in our verse two of our text. Son of man, because that Tyrus has set against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken. That was the gates of the people. She has turned unto me, I shall be replenished. Now she's laid waste. Now this is King James way of them saying, ha ha, Jerusalem's finally getting what they deserve. Those Jews in Jerusalem, their gates are being crushed. They're all being destroyed, good for them. We're glad to see those Jews destroyed. They were sort of reveling in the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, you know, this reminds you and me, by the way, that we shouldn't rejoice at the perils of others. That's not something God appreciates. This is where God was saying, I'm gonna judge you, Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the men of Tyre were over here, <laughs> and the Lord says, you're next. You're going down. Because they were, you know, reveling in the fact that Jerusalem was gonna be destroyed. So that's the reason why God says, you're going down, Tyre, because of your arrogance against Jerusalem and hating the Jews. By the way, in the world today, anti-Semitism is so radically on the rise. But when you read the story of Ezekiel 26, you have to understand, this is God saying, this is what happens to the people that are glad that my people are getting hurt or destroyed or judged. And right now, there's a huge portion of the world that revels in the destruction of the Jews. They love the synagogues being burned up or bombed. They like to hear that Jews are being killed in the streets. 
uh, we did this on the Prophecy Update just a couple weeks ago, talking about LA is a place where you don't wanna be a Jew found on the street because they might just beat you up. I'm like, it really is dangerous for Jews more than ever, more than even, you know, the Hitler era Nazi beginnings. Uh, To be a Jew anywhere in the world other than Israel, man, it's dangerous. And God always judges those people that hate the Jews. The Lord makes it clear, I will bless the nation that bless Israel and I'll curse the nation that curses Israel. Um, There's the judgment of the sheep and the goats where you, you understand, man, the Lord says, I have the great white throne judgment. I have the judgment seat of Christ. But the judgment seat of the, or the judgment of the sheep and the goats is where the Lord gathers the nations and judges them based on how they treated Israel, the Jews. There's a specific judgment for that. So the men of Tyre are laughing. And so the Lord says, you're going down, Tyre. And so three chapters of Ezekiel are given to the, the destruction of Tyre. So let's think about this, the history of the destruction of Tyre. And this is where it gets amazing um, because we read it and I told you to take note of how it was destroyed. What were some of the attributes? It says that Tyre would be scraped flat like a rock and that the houses, verse 14, would be torn up and they'd take the rubble of the houses and throw it into the water. And they would, they, would, um, they would have these bulwarks and these engines of the Babylonians come and crush the wall. Like, like there's very descript detail of how this would be destroyed. And this is where it gets really fascinating. If you look at an ancient map of Tyre, um, uh, this map I, I've got, I, I, the labeling is a little off and I'll tell you why. Because the mainland was Tyre, the city. The island is a half a mile off the, the coast of the Mediterranean. So one half mile to this little island. Um, and it would become the city Tyre in certain times of history. It didn't start that way. It was just an island. But when the Phoenicians settled this area, they made this, this city of Tyre on the mainland. Like I said, it was like the New York City. Shipping, commerce. So they made the island a fortress. And they put a wall all the way around the island And that was like a a defense for any ships that would try to float in and attack the city of Tyre. So it was a stronghold that the island was. And the city went on, by the way, uh, for centuries. During the first millennium BC, uh, they had a golden age during the reign of King Hiram. Sometimes he's in history called Ahiram. Um, But King of Tyre, uh, in 971 to 939 BC, that was the heyday. That was when it was like the New York City Wall Street of the world, um, this, this place called Tyre. Um, but the Phoenician traders there began to seriously expand their range of their shipping during the late eighth century BC, uh, giving the city the nickname, the Queen of the Seas. The Mediterranean Sea was the queen. Why? Because it was the city that was basically supporting all the Mediterranean uh, nations. And Tyre became so successful that it established a number of colonies around the Mediterranean. One of the colonies, including the city of Carthage, maybe you remember studying that in history, that came from the men of Tyre in their wealth and their power. They established Carthage along the northern African coast and what have you. But I'm just trying to paint that picture of how amazing this place was. Well, Jerusalem was destroyed. What, what was the date of the final destruction of Jerusalem? Anybody? Right, somebody said it. 586 BC. Well, guess what? The next year in 585, remember it goes backwards, BC? 585 BC, right after Nebuchadnezzar crushed Jerusalem, guess what happened? He turned up one year later and went and started bashing Tyre. And he did it with chariots, horses, like the history is written. 
extra biblical writings about the destruction of the Babylonians wiping out Tyre. And it's got stories of chariots running over people in the streets and engines or bulwarks, these, these machines that they would make to just ram the walls and crush the walls of Tyre. And like, it's, 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 it's amazing. Like when you read particularly the, the, um, the section here, um, verse seven, all the way through um, verse 12, you see the description here. It fits the exact description of what Nebuchadnezzar did to wipe out the mainland city of Tyre. The island wasn't really messed up as much by Nebuchadnezzar uh, because it, it wasn't really helped. That was more to defend against shipping. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't come in ships. He came on land and wiped out the city of Tyre with his, um, you know, the bashing of the battering rams and all that stuff. So that was the, the first attack. But here's the problem. The prophecy says in verse four, I will scrape the dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. I will make, the Lord says, a flat tire. Um, the Lord said, I will not spare Tyre. It was not gonna be a good year for this city. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, it's, it's, this is my fourth service, so. Um, so the, the Babylonians, they, they began to fulfill the prophecy against Tyre, but they didn't complete the, the prophecy. They, they bashed everything up and there was piles of rubble historically, but it wasn't scraped clean. Their houses weren't thrown into the water. There was a bunch of stuff left undone. So guess what happens? This is Ezekiel giving a prophecy that goes past the Babylonians. And 225 years later, a dude comes along by the name Alexander. At this time, he was just a young, young conquering Greek. Uh, probably still uh, in his young 20s, maybe even in his 19. Alexander comes and brings part of his army and they besiege Tyre because they started building it up again. Remember the prophecy said it would no longer be in its former glory. The, man of, uh, the city of Tyre would, would be no longer a big impressive city, city, but they're starting to make it impressive again. So Alexander comes along and he besieges 13 years his army was around the city of Tyre. That's a long besieging. And it really made Alexander the Great to be really in a bad mood, the whole Tyre notion, because he was there for so long. But here's the thing that history tells us that's really interesting. When Alexander finally busts through and gets into the city of Tyre after 13 years of besieging it, lo and behold, there's no one in there. The people of Tyre figured out a way to sneak out of the, the walled city on the mainland and they snuck out to the fortress on the island. And so, so Alexander the Great was furious. So guess what he did? He was so mad that he said, we are gonna take the rubble of this city that we just smashed and the rubble that the, the 200 years earlier the, the Babylonians left and we're gonna scoop all their houses and all their rubble and we're gonna scoop it into the sea and make a, 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 a causeway to get from the mainland to the, to the fortress island. And that's what they did. History tells us Alexander the Great literally put rocks on his own back and carried it and threw it into the sea, personally. And so Alexander the Great, he built this causeway out of the rubble of their homes. Remember what verse 14 says? They shall break down thy walls, destroy thy pleasant houses, and they shall lay thy stones and timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. Little did Alexander the Great know he was fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy about how 
Tyre would be, you know, their houses would be thrown in the ocean. Well, Alexander the Great finally gets out there and wipes out and kills most of the people that were out in the fortress city of Tyre. Um, but that's not the end of the story. You see, because the prophecy wasn't completely fulfilled, Alexander did take most of the rubble of the mainland Tyre and threw most of the rubble in, but it, there was still rolling mountains and still some rubble and, and a few things left. Fast forward to 1290 AD. What was going on during that time? Any of you history buffs? The Crusades. As it turns out, the Crusaders came down to the new city that was being rebuilt once again. After Alexander kind of wiped it out, it stayed sort of messed up for a long time. But in 1290, they started, the Crusaders started building it up again. Uh, but the Muslims drove them out and the Muslims knocked over the city again. And you know what they did? Um, and we don't really know why the Muslims did this. But not only did they knock over the city that the Crusaders were building back up in 1290 AD, but they scraped the ground and pushed it all into the sea, into the ocean. And they made a big wide. Um, this, is, this is an interesting uh, depiction of, you see the, the, the one that Alexander was building, that, that, you know, kind of that causeway. That was what Alexander did. But you see the tan area there? Uh, that's where the, the, the Muslims just threw everything else in the ocean and sort of broadened the, the rubbish, the garbage, and made that area a big landmass. And it becomes like a peninsula. And so you've got, interestingly enough, um, if, you, if you look at it, you, you kind of see what it looks like today. It's, it looks like a big landfill uh, and, and it's connected now. In fact, check out the Google Earth look at it uh, today. That's what it is today. And that, that, that gap between the island was filled by first, you know, Nebuchadnezzar attacked first, then Alexander built a little strip along there, and then the, the crusaders filled in all the rest. And that's as it sits today. Now you say, Brad, I see little houses and buildings. There's a little neighborhood right there. Well, a lot of that space, by the way, is ruin. Um, there's a lot of ruin there. Uh, the, but there is a little village. It's just a little village. And guess what they do there? It's not a big city. It's not a New York City or flashy hub of commerce. It's a little fishing village today where they spread their nets on the shore uh, of, of this little island, exactly like Ezekiel the prophet said would happen. The spreading of the nets on the side, those are fishermen's nets. This, this to me is amazing. So if you go there today, a lot of it looks like this. There's just old, flat. it's flat, but there's all these ancient rocks and ruin in the rubble. that's uh, in the ocean, but also just everything was kind of, some people have pulled these pillars out of the ocean and stuck them back up so that people could come and see the ruins uh, as they once were. What does this mean for you and me? It means this is just one of hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that came to pass exactly like the Bible said. So accurate are things like this. What do the pipe puffing cardigan sweater wearing guys say about this stuff? They say it's all a forgery. Um, the one they really hate is the book of Daniel. They also hate Isaiah. Because in those prophecies, and also Ezekiel, they say the person who wrote this had to have been writing this after all this stuff happened. So they make the claim like, let me give you a good one about Daniel. They make the claim the book of Daniel was written in 90 AD. Ridiculous, harebrained. Why do they say that? Because Daniel wrote prophecies about Alexander the Great, wrote prophecies about the Medes and the Persians, the Roman Empire, like to exact detail, Daniel. So they say, Daniel was a forgery. And there's a, there's, the reason that's so funny is it's a ridiculous argument. 
Um, you can convince an 18-year-old fresh out of high school that it's a forgery. But anybody that knows anything about history, they know that there's an Old Testament rewriting of the Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translation of Hebrew to Greek, and it was like 270 BC. When the, and that's not debatable. We know the Septuagint was written in 270 BC, which was long before these prophecies of Daniel ever came to pass. And the book of Daniel was in the Septuagint. In other words, they're trying to make it look like Daniel was a forgery that was written in 90 AD, but there's absolute proof that at least the book of Daniel goes back to 270 BC, which undermines their whole argument. But no, no 18 year old kid from high school knows the argument of that. So these guys get away with year after year saying the Bible's a forgery, full of errors, and our kids are just taking notes and you're paying $50,000 a year for that. Indoctrination, that's what they're doing. Better to take the Bible as it is in truth, the word, the word of God. This chapter to me is another glorious chapter showing that God knows what he's doing. The Bible is miraculous. The fingerprints of God are on this book. Um, that's why we study it. The Bible says, and you know, uh, it's, it's clear, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I conclude with this final thought, of all the things that are provable in the Bible, the one that they like to shoot at the most is like the stuff I was talking about, Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas, because it has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have a big desire to say there was no Jesus and this and that, but of all the things that are provable, I wanna tell you, and I don't have time to do it here, I have in other studies, but the most provable thing in the Bible is the gospel story. That Christ came, died on the cross in Jerusalem for the sins of the world, and that he rose from the grave. More than 500 eyewitness accounts of a, of, of a guy, Jesus, dying on a cross, being buried in a tomb, and then three days later, raising up from the dead. And people will try to undermine that, but I wanna tell you, take an honest look, the Bible is right. The Bible is miraculous. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Don't be duped by those professing themselves to be wise but have become fools. Don't be duped, you guys. But you're, you're a wise man and a wise woman to say, I'm gonna take the Bible for what it says. God's holy word. Amen? Amen. Lord, how I pray for those who are, first of all, saved Christians. May we just once again rejoice May our hearts leap with joy as we consider how wonderful it is that we have the, the inspired word of God right here in our hands. Help us not to take that for granted, but I pray to be readers of your word, lovers of your word, um, students of scripture. For the skeptic, for the cynic, Lord, I pray that you'd soften their heart. Lord, all these guys over the centuries trying to undermine this biblical truth and scripture, and yet your word remains. Would you soften hearts and, and have them take an honest look at what your word actually says and to see its verifiable nature and how miraculous this book is. Soften them, Lord, that they might accept you and be saved. Lord, that they'd repent of their own sins. Lord, like it was said, that people don't, the Bible, people try to say the Bible's full of contradiction, not, not because there is contradiction, but because it contradicts their lifestyle, their worldview. So we pray that you do a softening, that more and more people would come to know you and the love that you have for them and the forgiveness of sin that's readily available. We ask this, Lord, knowing that you're able to do this. We commit it to you in Jesus' name, amen.